Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello there. I didn't see you. Hi, listeners. <laughs> welcome back. Uh, welcome to this week's episode of the Ladies Who London podcast. Um, thank you so much for coming back. I hope you've had a lovely week. Uh, it's been a busy week over here in Old Hampshire. I've been darting up to London quite a bit to go and uh, film some stuff for some projects that I've got going on. Um, it's been really lovely weather. It's quite nice and cold. I love the cold. I really love the cold. Um, but it's been quite nice, actually, having... Uh, sort of moved out of London for a little bit to go back occasionally and go and see things that, you know, I forget about. And I, I go back in with, with refreshed eyes and tootle around and think, oh, I've forgotten how much I love London or might love that bit or oh, I haven't seen that in ages. And, and I have to say, uh, things keep getting added to the podcast list, which, I mean, it's not getting any shorter. I can tell you that for nothing. Um, so don't worry, we are here for a while. And I've had quite a few people get in touch this week to say, oh, thanks for, for carrying on with the podcast. And you are very welcome. I am very much enjoying it. Um, it's it's I, I wasn't sure. I mean, you know, I was how unsure I was about it when uh, Emily left and I was like, can I do this on my own? And I can. Although um, I do have a new co-host starting very soon. More information on that next week. Um, just a couple of little highs to some uh, some people. Um, there's a few people who've sent some emails lately uh, who I haven't uh, got back to actually. Um, one in particular, a very long, lovely email from Ian Johnson who um, emailed just after the executions uh, podcast and said that he went to the exhibition shortly after it opened and it was it it was an amazing exhibition and um agrees that it's probably got the edge slightly over the uh, the museum of london in in the main uh, city and he's mentioned you know s- small and quirky museums which is exactly what we're here for so i think there'll be a little bit more of that coming uh, uh, coming along so thank you ian for getting in touch and i had another message from uh, on instagram lady called who goes by the name of Burke Star Girl. I don't know what your real name is. I couldn't find that out. Did a little bit of sleuthing, but mm, to no avail. And this is exactly what I hoped to have from this podcast. Um, she said I was uh, so I had put up something on the Instagram stories about um, Banqueting House on Whitehall, which is where Charles I was executed. And shortly after the exhibition uh, executions podcast, I happened to be there. So I popped a little something up and she said, I was just near there on Saturday and was able to be very informative for my husband, reciting what I learned from your podcast, which let's face it, that is what it is all about. 
taking that info, claiming it as your own and looking amazing. So, <laughs> well done. Um, that is exactly what we're hoping for. And a little shout out to Grady, who got in touch from Canada. Uh, it's always very exciting when uh, people get in touch from uh, from further afield. And um, he's a new listener who said uh, that he listens to the podcast while at work and he's burning through the episodes like crazy. So, Grady, you've got a little while to get catch up uh, to this one before you get your shout out. But uh, but hello and thank you for listening uh, for listening in. Well, this week, gang, um, we have a rather special guest and I'm really excited for you to hear this week's episode. I, a little while ago, I was doing a bit of research into one of the topics that I had on my list of things I fancied covering at some point, And they all led me back to one lady, a lady called Kate Thompson. Now, Kate has written, well, a variety of books, actually, about uh, London's history. Lots of little, you know, things that are very much uh, in the line of this podcast. Little bits of history, smaller stuff, quirkier stuff, more interesting things um, than the, the main, you know, general stuff. And um, we got chatting and I, I, I emailed her and never thought she'd get back to me. And I said, would you fancy coming on this crazy little podcast of mine? And she came back immediately and said, yes, I'd love to. So I was thrilled. And so this week, what we've talked about is... Um, the, now, for those of you who know London, particularly the East End of London, um, and are fans of World War II history at all, then the Bethnal Green tube station will certainly have popped up in your uh, rummaging around. Um, we know it a lot for a particular event that happened, which we'll go into on the podcast. But Kate has written a book. Now, it is um, a fictional book, but based on real people and real events, um, all based around how Bethnal Green Tube was used during World War Two, And we talked everything from the people that she spoke to while researching this book, to how the whole thing worked out, to the East End generally, and what the vibe was in the area around that time. We talk about matriarchs, these strong East End matriarchs, and all sorts of really fun stuff. So I'm going to hand over to our little chat that we had last week, um, about all of this. We recorded on Zoom, so the audio is not the greatest, but hopefully you'll still uh, be able to uh, enjoy the podcast. And I'll be back at the end uh, to tidy everything up. But for now, let me hand you over to the lovely, very entertaining, we had a great chat, I really, really enjoyed it, um, the fabulous Kate Thompson to talk all things Bethnal Green. Hello, listeners. Well, this week we have a real treat uh, on the podcast. I would like to introduce you to the lovely Kate Thompson, who is a writer, and she has just published a new book uh, all about the topic that we're going to talk about today. But let me introduce her and she can explain a bit more. Uh, welcome to Ladies Who London, Kate. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. So lovely to be here. I'm thrilled to have you here. I'm so um, ch uh, chuffed when I got your email back to say yes, I'd love to, which is, which is amazing. Um, oh, and no, we're going to be on your site, and I was I was hooked. I loved it. I love what you're doing. So yeah, any chance to be a part of it, of course. Thank you so much. And uh, one of the reasons I, I wanted to get in touch is you've written a couple of books which are very much in the vein of our podcast, which is the un told stories of people and particular little nuggets of history that people don't know about um, but before we begin on all that can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into writing and all of that yes of course of course so I've always been a journalist by trade it was all the only thing I could ever really do so from the age of about 18 failed miserably at school <laughs> um, but found a home <laughs> you know one GCSE to my name fantastic but I, I, bet it was, I bet it was in English though wasn't it yeah it was it was how did you know <laughs> maths I don't even bother turning up for the exam actually thinking about it <laughs> no English is writing stories 
um, was the only thing that I felt comfortable in and that I could do um, and that made sense to me. So I kind of find a, 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 a warm bath, if you like, to slip into with Fleet Street. I was very much in, you know, enjoyed that, going out and finding and uncovering stories. And so for many, many years, I worked as a journalist um, on national newspapers, but also women's magazines. And then the usual story, pregnant with my second child, I got made redundant and I thought, <laughs> you know, women's magazines, how lovely. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I thought, God, well, what am I going to do now? And I, a friend of mine was ghostwriting. So by that, I don't mean writing spooky stories, but she was <laughs> writing. Which um, would be pretty cool in itself, though. I mean, well, absolutely. <laughs> but no, it was writing other people's memoirs on their behalf. So that's what I did. I got into that. I never in a million years thought that I could write a book. That was just never a dream because I, in my mind, you had to have a degree to write a book. You had to be Oxbridge educated. Oh, bless you. I couldn't, no, that's how I genuinely, I thought I couldn't do it. But writing other people's stories gave me a, a sort of confidence, I suppose. Oh, I can, I can write a book. It's, I can craft a book. It's, a, a you know, to do this long form narrative. So I, I go through five memoirs and then my agent said, look, why don't you have a go at fiction? You know, there's a huge um, market out there. So I did. I wrote my first book in 2015, which was called Secrets of the Singer Girls. And it was all about these incredible women who I had met going up to the East End and interviewing who used to work in the rag trade in the factories. Oh, wow. And yeah, they were incredible. And they blew me away because like, I had this slightly clumsy stereotype perception about probably older women and I and I went up to and I met these two wonderful characters called Vera and Kathy and they were from oh, that, I mean that, that you could not get more kind of I know, London away, times names, could you? <laughs> so, so I went up there and, and I was chatting to them and they were telling me about the East End during the Blitz and their pride at being East Enders and staying put in the Blitz and we had this wonderful chat and I still remember at the end of the interview I got up to go and Vera went, oh, wait, oh, we, we knitted you something. And I just had my second son at the time. I thought, oh, how sweet. They've, they've knitted baby booties. And she bought out this sort of thing with soft white wool with a little blue ribbon. Anyway, she held it up and it was a willy warmer. And they fell about <laughs> That is amazing. <laughs> and it made me realise, actually, that, that, that women, especially women from the East End, but it could apply to all working class areas, are irreverent and subversive and crafty and mischievous. You know, and they were just, they completely changed my perception towards women, especially women from the East End. And I suppose that for that starting point, I went I went off and interviewed hundreds more women from the East End who survived the Blitz, who, who worked in factories, who, who did this whole plethora of roles to keep their communities running. And it completely opened my eyes to what the true nature of working class women and that real matriarchal society that they operated in. And that changed everything. And so I began to write fiction novels based on their experiences and the stories that they were telling me. And so that's, I'm now on, uh, so the Little Wartime Library has just come out. That's book number 11. So there's no shortage of incredible, incredible. women and ideas out there. And so that's what we're going to talk about today is this Little Wartime Library, yes. which yeah. is well, I had a little a little rummage uh, to have a little look about it, and of course, uh, most things bring it back to your lovely book. Um, and so, tell me a little bit about this. This is this is one of the lovely little things about London that just is so curious, and and unless you know where to look and and what to yeah about it, then it doesn't really 
offer itself up as a topic so no, no. I always think that history is sometimes hidden beneath our feet yeah. Um, we, we're never really aware of it. And, and this whole book came about because I had sat, again, through conversations, through listening to stories. I think, you know, listening, um, active listening is such a underused skill, I think, sometimes. So when I go out and interview people, particularly people who were born before the advent of a welfare state, mm. um, I really try to understand and listen to what it is that they're saying. And so this, I was interviewing this lady called Pat Spicer, and I was interviewing her at the Museum of Childhood in Bethnal Green, which I don't know if you know, it's a wonderful museum. Yeah. And I said to her, oh, Pat, it must have been awful during the Blitz. Where did you, you know, where did you sleep? And she said, oh, I slept underground at Bethnal Green Tube, which was you know, a few, a stone's throw from where we were sitting. And I said, oh, God, it must have been awful. Because in my mind, I had remembered or had seen images of people, you know, like the Henry Moore sheltered rooms where everybody's sleeping in a big yeah. hut room dirty railways platforms and it looks quite primal and scary it and really said, does yeah yeah you know what I mean by that like you know propped up against escalators and um and she said to me oh no dear she said it was lovely she's had the time of my life <laughs> I said what's that and she said well Bethnal Green at that point was was not in use as an underground station at the outset of war builders were working on connecting it to the central line mm. but when war broke out all the building work was suspended and it was really just locked up and kind of left to the rats it was a building site but but when the blitz began eastenders who were horrified at the lack of deep level shelter you know 100 people were getting killed nightly they took over the tubes mm. in protest at the lack of deep level shelter and what we saw with Bethel Green over time it transformed into this really vibrant subterranean community with all the amenities that you'd have above ground but sunk below ground so you know a theater um, a creche run by the WVS to Amazing. enable newly franchised women to go to work and a library um, this is incredible and it, would you say that, that Bethel Green was the sort of the flagship of, of the underground? Because this is what I think a lot of people don't realise is whenever we think about the blitz spirit in London, you're right, it's about that, that sort of that Henry Moore type um, image of everybody in the tube station, yeah. sleeping there, strung in hammocks over the live rails. Um, and, and we talk about, oh, you know, it was, it was the blitz spirit and it was really cheery. But at the start, the government didn't want that. Whenever you say it was protest, oh, when actually, they were going down there... Yeah, the government were yeah. trying to stop them. And eventually they were like, do you know what? Like, yeah. Fine. And then they started to put in amenities. So That's would you say right. that Bethnal Green was the sort of flagship um, one? Because it feels like it's got a lot. No, definitely, definitely. I mean, it's a bit of an anomaly because obviously they didn't have, there were no tube trains running through, so they could take over the whole place. And it's, it's enormous, Bethnal Green. It's 78 feet below ground. Mm. So it was one of the, the few really safe places to shelter in the borough. And at, at the same time that locals were taking over the tube, there was this, um, and again, nobody's ever heard of this, but there was a group from Stepney who who took over the underground banqueting suite of the Savoy. And whenever I walk past really? the Savoy, this is what I think of. So they took it over in protest that why is it in the West End you had blitz butlers, you know, and people were in incredible, you know, in their fur coats, in underground banqueting halls, very safe and secure. Whereas not five miles east, people were getting killed nightly. So mm. they took over the, uh, the the banqueting hall in protest because they also knew that it was the only place that the American press, who weren't subject to censorship, was staying. So they'd get the word out there. Mm. And one week later, Churchill had a U-turn and he declared the use of tube stations as shelter. Official, like, yeah. Officially, in terms yeah. of 
green so lit, the, yeah. yeah so at the same time as that Bethnal Green was sort of having something you know it was I suppose quite an anarchic area in some ways and I spoke to this lady called Phoebe who I met her at an old um, a sort of I suppose it would be you know like a community centre and she said, oh, my dad, Harry, she said he was a terrible gambler. You know, he bet on two flies crawling up on a wall, but he wasn't <laughs> prepared to gamble on his wife and children's life. And he liberated, in inverted commas, the key to the underground, <gasps> unlocked Bethnal Green, and in they went, in their thousands. People oh, streamed, my goodness. streamed Danny out of use escalators. And, and, and I think in the early days, it was very rudimentary. You know, people were tucked up in the pits. Mm. You know, there was bare electric cables hanging from the ceiling it was it was horrible really everybody did their business in a bucket and but it saved lives and over time so over the course of the next sort of six to eight months that whole station was completely transformed into this many layered sort of subterranean community and what I love about that story Alex, is it shows how you know far from descending into that troglodyte mentality that Churchill and, and people in Westminster feared that actually people left to their own devices would come up with this really sophisticated, um, vibrant community in which it, it was miles ahead of its time, if you think mm. about it. There was no welfare state then. And yet underground at Bethnal Green, you had a free doctor's, a free library, free healthcare, free childcare. Incredible. Amazing, right? <laughs> Do you think that you said it didn't descend into the sort of troglodyte thing that, that Churchill had expected? Do you think there's an element of it being... And, and, you know, I don't want to romanticise this too much, but it being the sort of the East End thing of the East End has always been the poorest area. Mm -hmm. They have got yeah. on and they have made the best of yeah. what they've got. If they've got no money, that's fine. They will find entertainment. They will find yeah. healthcare. You're Whereas so if you're right. if you're talking about the Westminster, which, yeah. let's face it, does tend to come from a more elite background and the, the, the oh, likes of Churchill, who have everything on a golden platter... Do you think there's an element of that of them sort oh, of undermining, or like not or not undermining? What's the word? Um, sort of un underestimating the people of the yes. East End. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think that you know people born in the East End, which is you know when you think about it, it's quite a it, immigrant population. People have been mm. coming in, you know, washing up in the docks, you know, with the Huguenots and and the Jewish fleeing the pogroms. It, it, it sort of bred a kind of resilience in people you know that yeah. poverty and is bred in the bone if you like and so they're very used to kind of using that resilience and that quick wit and adapting and and, and making the best of their situation and, and that was very true of East of Bethnal Green Underground um you know I, I spoke to another lady called Minxie who was a wonderful wonderful character she um I met her actually and she was she was in her 90s when I met her in, in a cafe called Polici's on Bethnal Green Road. I know Never it well. Let's go, yeah. <laughs> it's an institution. Oh, it's so wonderful. And I used to meet Mix Mixie in there and she'd whip a microphone out of her bag and just start singing in the middle of the cafe and everyone would join in. And she, during the Blitz, would go underground with her two sisters. They were Bethnal Green's answers to the Andrew sisters. Amazing. Sing harmonies and they would to entertain people. And she said, you know, Kate, we didn't wait for people to entertain us. We entertained them. And yeah. I think to me that says so much about the psyche of East Enders, um, that they they can, you know, they won't be told, you know, and, and they're, they're very irreverent, I think, and subversive and mischievous and crafty. I've never met an East Ender yet that isn't like that, that isn't so sharp-witted. Mm. Um, and I think that says it, it tells a wider story, that underground community, about East Enders in general. 
And how did you meet all of these really fascinating people? How did you meet Minxie and, and, and Vera and all of these wonderful women? That, that... Oh, they're amazing. I, gosh, it's hard to say, really. I, it's funny, a historian said to me the other day, he said, oh, you sort out primary sources. And that made no sense to me. I think I, I was like, I just, I just like, I like listening to stories. I think that's what it's always come back to when I was a journalist, when I was a ghostwriter, and now as a novelist. It's about uncovering stories. And so I would go to bingo mornings, coffee mornings, tea dances, um, community centres. And the more people you meet them, they say, oh, you should chat to my friend. And yeah. And, and so it went on. And, and I also got very involved with the Stairway to Heaven Memorial, which is the charity that's set up for um, to honour the lives of the people that were killed at Bethnal Green in 1943. I don't know. Yes, yeah, so this that. is, um, we haven't covered it on the podcast, actually. Um, and, uh, people who do know London and particularly war history will probably be aware of this, that this is one of the greatest mm-hmm. tragedies related to this, this the tube um, being, yeah. being used yeah. as shelter. Um, well, yeah, please explain a little bit more about it. Well, okay, yeah, so it was, it was, as you said, it was the biggest civilian loss of life, the biggest wartime civilian loss of life in the Second World War, but it's very little known of because Churchill put the Official Secrets Act on it. But mm. if I can explain it like this, it was almost like the Hillsborough of its day. So by 1943, obviously, as we now know, thousands of people were sleeping underground at Bethnal Green. There was triple bunks that slept up to 7,000 people running down the eastbound oh tunnels. goodness. If you walk from Bethnal Green up to Mile End, all that uh, stretch of pavement under your feet would have had miles and miles of triple bunks underneath where people were sleeping. It was their home, you know, what just Their homes were destroyed, they slept down there. So we already know it was this subterranean community, but there was one tiny uh, central staircase that went down to there, and that was the only... Um, entryway, if you like, into solitary entryway into this subterranean And it's, it's quite long and quite steep as well, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. And at that point, it was 17, no, 19 steps down, um, and they were unfinished, and there was no central handrail. And so, unfortunately, what happened one night, March 1943, we're coming up actually to the 80th anniversary of it this March, um, a lady carrying, well, what's believed to have happened is a lady carrying a child tripped and before she could get up, a gentleman off behind her trip fell over and it caused this devastating human domino effect. People went down and people at the back didn't know what was happening at the front because it was all blacked out. Mm-hmm. So that's it. It, was, it was the most terrible crush. I mean, within 15 minutes, I think um, hundreds of people were just writhing, that the, the bodies were laced five, six deep. It was absolute bedlam. And 173, and it's got to be said, mainly women and children died that night on the steps down which, to the underground. Which, which is, feels like a not just a, a big number for a wartime tragedy, but for a, a crush yes. in a in a tube station. I mean that that number is just Staggering, unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. I mean you can I, I often try to imagine as I walk down those steps to Bethel Green, you cannot conceive of the loss of life and how tragic it was that these bodies were trapped essentially and they were sort of trapped in such a tangled mess of complexity that it took three hours before the rescue workers were able to extricate the last body um and so it was you know it was a prof- it caused a it really drew this dark veil of suffering over the east end it was a profound loss everybody knew somebody who had died down there um you know rescuers hair turned gray overnight people were traumatized by all that loss of life um you know, and, and people were forbidden from talking about it. So 
it was it's hard to conceive in our modern society because we have you know we understand post-traumatic stress Mm. we understand the need to share stories but back then there was none of that sufferers were left alone and forced to to just kind of suffer in silence essentially and so 80 years on um there is a wonderful memorial there uh, over the steps to the tube now yeah which is wonderful and this march um march the 5th actually on sunday at 2 p.m there's a big final um memorial service to the victims and we've got the last survivors who will be there sharing their stories so i've become very involved with them and over the years and they in turn have put me in touch with with eastenders who've told me their stories which is really lovely. And yeah, so if, if people do want to go along, because this is something that's open to the yeah, public, this, this memorial, absolutely. did you say it's the last one they're going to do? It's going to be the last ever one. I think because yeah. it's the 80th anniversary um, and we're looking at the very last survivors now, mm. I think it just feels like a good place to sort of draw a line under it now because it takes a lot of organising. But it will be very moving and poignant and we will all, after the service, everybody will walk over and stand under the memorial and have a minute's silence and try to make sense of, those stories and, and the last people that who were pulled from the crush, people like Babs Clark and Alf Morris will will share their stories as well. So it's a real moment in time. It's a real part of our history that needs to be remembered, I think. Absolutely. And so a lot of our listeners are really good if they're in London or around, um, are very good at going to things. Um, oh, and uh... <laughs> the, the pearly kings and queens will be there. There's, you know, a lot will be going on. It's a real piece of social history. So can you let us know the details of that? Because a few people, and I'm, I'm looking at particularly our listeners, Susan and Karen, who go to everything, which is amazing. Um, where <laughs> where do they need to be? What I'm date? <laughs> yeah, pop along, Susan and Karen. Um, yeah. They always message me to say, oh, I saw, yeah, we heard about that. We've been, which is amazing. So, um <laughs> Can you let us know the details, times, dates, locations? I absolutely will, yeah. But it's Sunday the 5th of March at 2pm at St John's Church, which is basically when you come out of Bethel Green Tube, you look left, there's the church, that's it. So come along at 2pm, Sunday, March the 5th. I'll be there um, as well, encouraging people to share memories and I'll be selling my new book, the Little Autumn Library there as well. So it's... um, you know, it will be a, it will be a sad time, obviously, but it's also a time for to remember all those wonderful people, that incredibly vibrant, colourful community of people that sheltered underground at Bethnal Green. Yeah, uh, for me, it's just it's such a fascinating story. It really is. I, I, I you know, and it's... Book about it. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, so your book is called the the Little Wartime yeah. Library. So tell us about why did you pick that the library in particular? What's what what was it that that grabbed you about it, that? Well, because going back to Pat, she told me about the underground facilities and I was really intrigued by it. And then she said, oh, and she said, and I, she said, yes, it was hard. She said it was difficult sleeping in a tube tunnel. That was her home. Can you imagine that? You know, for a kid. Unbelievable. Waking up and, but actually she said it was quite fun. We used to play kiss chase up the tunnels and it. And <laughs> it just, she said all things considered, it felt quite normal to be living in an underground station. I suppose that, you know, as a kid, you get used to that, don't you? you? Imagine, and yeah. There's, there's less fear and there's more excitement about yeah. something unusual or whatever. <laughs> I spoke to this wonderful man called Ronnie and he said, oh, me and my mates, he said, there was this part of the tube that was strictly forbidden, was off limits to all the kids. And it was down the tunnel. And then it was like a grate, a door with a sort of air vent in it. And he said, and when the wind rushed through it, it made the most terrible moaning sound. So we used to call it the murder room. And he said, <laughs> strictly forbidden for going against, but of course we went in and it was a secret um it was a secret fire escape that came out like almost a mile away near Mile End. Mm-hmm. And they'd go up and down it and play. So it was like a little 
labyrinth almost, a sort of underground playground for these kids. But going back to Pat, she would say, oh, yeah, she said, I'd wander up the long, gloomy tunnels and I'd go into the library and I'd borrow Millie Molly Mandy. And she said, and that library um, transformed me. She said, it, it instilled this absolute love of reading, which has lasted all my life. And I thought, how incredible is that, that an under mm. a forgotten, tiny underground library on a tube station can instill this love of reading in someone that lasts all their life. Yeah. It made me realise the power of a library and also the but also the kind of escapism and the solace and the sanctuary of reading, particularly in the times of conflict, like we saw mm. with, with COVID, how much reading soared. And it was the same during the Blitz. This concept of reading for victory yeah. was really formed back then. So you've got this this library in the tunnels, and mm. of course, you say seven thousand people a night. They're not yeah. just gonna have one or two books. Where did the books come from? How did they I mean, was it just people hauling them out of their homes and popping them in there? What, what so what what happened on the first night of the Blitz, which we now know to be called Black Saturday, it was September the 7th, 1940, Bethnal Green Library, above ground, obviously, which is really pretty much opposite the tube inside what locals call Barmy Park, because it used to be, a, I don't know if you know this, but Bethnal Green Library used to be a, a lunatic asylum. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, for hundreds of years. I still find this staggering. And it was only closed down in 1920. <gasps> it was an awful, notorious um, place where you know, people that were essentially mentally ill were incarcerated. Goodness, we've and spoken that, about Bedlam before, so we we yeah, yeah we have exactly we have skin in the game here. Yeah, yeah, and so that's why it's it's still known as Barmy Park. But anyway, that closed <laughs> in 1920, and the library opened up in 1922 in what was the male wing of the lunatic asylum. So it struck me. That's incredible, actually, isn't it? That a place like that, of such darkness and despair, could close down within two years, a Carnegie library opens up. What a message of hope that must have sent to the yeah, community. From something, yeah, quite destructive, something really yeah. restorative. And when you're saying Pat and her lifetime love of reading, that's, that's, right. that's the difference yeah. books can make. Indeed, indeed. And so when that library opened up, it was phenomenally popular. Um, books um, exceeded a million loan mark within a year or two so it was a much loved sort of local institution on the first night of the place it was bombed a huge bomb dropped through the roof the beautiful glass domed roof um into the adult reading section and so what happened they had these two incredible librarians a man uh called stanley snaith um and he, name. i know what a name. Name. he was a and he um basically decided to conduct what he called in his mind was a pioneering social experiment. So rather than sort of dragging a tarpaulin over the roof and heading for the nearest shelter, they took as many books as they could salvage and then they trans transported them 78 feet below ground down to the tunnels. So wow. it was as many books really as they could get from the bombed library. And it was a sort of branch library, a pop-up library, if you will. That's incredible. Um, isn't it? To think of that, to think of librarians putting books in wheelbarrows and then transporting them underground, because they, they came up with the idea that, you know, if people can't get to the books, we must take books to the people. And I love that. It's I think so enterprising, isn't it? It shows it shows to me the, the creativity and the agility and the resilience of librarians. And, and that that actually was something that was being mirrored all across London. It wasn't, you know, libraries were popping up everywhere. It wasn't just mm. in underground tunnels. We had in, in Camden, um, St Pancras... Borough Council, as it was then, came up with the first travelling mobile library, which they took all around Camden and King's Cross. Midway through the Blitz, their bombs were dropping, and they were sort of 
driving books around <laughs> and it's unveiling the mayor of St Pancras said that people without books are like houses without windows and I found all these wonderful photographs of these old library buses and of course the library underground at Bethnal Green and it just blew my mind I thought that, that again that the librarians are they saw the the, the war as opportunity mm. you know it's an opportunity to get more readers to to appeal to people to embed themselves in a sort of fabric of local society and they did that to such huge you know to huge success really amazing how people without books are like houses without windows that is that wonderful that is an amazing phrase i know and what's more gratifying than the thought of this enormous library bus driving through the cratered streets delivering books to people on bomb sites to rescue centers to to arp units Goodness. i think it just it shows such imagination and versatility and and I love that that they were doing this, that there was this whole cultural drive going on and this this drive of reading for victory. Mm. And so do you, you said it was within the, the tube station. Was it, how did they work? Did they sort of section off bits of the tube station or you said it was down a little gloomy corridor? Is there a, a like a side room that they had it in or? Yeah, so I tried to, I actually went down to the underground with Alf Morris, who used to also used to sleep down there. He had to sort of show me where everything was. But mm. essentially in the booking hall, they had a cafe. So you could get, you know, okay. hot buses and pies. Nice. Great. Then you go down the out of use escalators and... I think on the left, so wherever the westbound tunnels were, that was almost like the entertainment. So they boarded over the tracks, and there you had the library, the theatre. Oh, wow. um, I was going to ask about the theatre and how that worked, actually. Yeah. So, you know, you could drop your child to the creche, you could go to the theatre, then you'd go to the library. And, and you know, by the way, that theatre, again, had Sadler's Wells Ballet, Russian <laughs> opera singers, baritone singers, plays. I mean... So it's not just your roll out a barrel, you know. No, local. no, no. I mean, there were wartime weddings and there were good old Eastern got their knees up and so forth. But yeah, they, there was a lot of art and culture there as well. So that was all on the on the westbound tunnel. And then if you crossed through, there was like a small tunnel almost. And in there was the doctor's quarters. Right. And then you could emerge on the eastbound tunnel. And that's where all the sleeping compartments were. So five, no, sorry, 7,000 triple bunks all the way up the eastbound tunnels. Yeah, so, you know, what a labyrinth. To, I, I'd do anything to just transport myself back to 1940. Oh, this is can you imagine always the thing I have. Home. Every time we talk about something, and uh, we've said a few times in the podcast, Emily and I would say, oh, wouldn't you love to go back in a time machine? There is so yeah. much that I would where love would to go and go? see. Where would you, what, I, you I, I, I genuinely you cannot answer that because there are so <laughs> many bits and pieces that I would just love to even just drop in for five minutes, have a quick peek yeah. and be like, Cool, cool. Yeah. You know, just yeah, soak yeah, up yeah. the atmosphere. I mean, oh, the frost fairs would be one yeah. on River Thames, which we've done oh, an episode yeah. on before. I oh. would want to go and hang out in the East End quite a lot. Um, I, oh, oh, goodness me. Every era. I'd love to be there for the Huguenots. I'd love to be there. Yes. I, you know, the whole thing. I mean, it would. When the match would be striking, wouldn't you like to be there as well? 100%. Up to, them, up to Westminster. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, there, there are so many things that I would just love yeah. to. I mean, I'd, I'd love to go back to the Roman times and just yes. see what's yeah. going on there. But but wartime is definitely one because we, yeah. we romanticize it so much, don't we? That, sure, and, we do. We do. I mean, but. And that's why within this book, I've really tried not to fall into that trap of becoming, not to sort of sugarcoat the past, because there were lots of horrendous things mm. happening to people, like 
you know, people lived under the spectre of loss. You know, it was the Bethel Green Sheep disaster, that, that awful, unexpected, savage loss of life. Mm. But also, you know, the place, In a place that you would feel safe. That was your home. Right, right. You know, that, that was home to so many people, which is what I think made it so shocking that on that night in March, that that, that like within 15 minutes, it was converted into a charnel house. You know, how can that be that mm. such a massive loss of life? Um and again, I think there was this, what I tend to find going around East End and speaking to people and uncovering these things is this, almost to my mind, like this grievous dereliction of duty that the council had asked central government many, many times for improvements to be made to that staircase. Mm. If they wanted a central handrail, they wanted better lighting. They understood it was an accident waiting to happen. And sure enough, it did. And then the next day they inserted a uh, central stair rail the very next day, you know, um, wow. Exactly. And they were, because it was under the Official Secrets Act, nobody was allowed to, it was never disclosed until sort of 70 years later that they had been requesting that improvements be made. And so, and then we saw again uh, in um, very nearby to that in Canning Town at South Poolsville School, a bomb was dropped on a, on a rescue centre, on a school there, yeah. and after 600 people were buried alive there. So I just feel like, and and, and that was again that West Town Council um had left them there sitting ducks in school for too long. Um, uh, buses were sent to Camden Town instead of Canning Town. So I always feel like it was the working people who were forced to suffer in a sense. And that's a pain that never fades, but festers. Mm. That's my sense when I talk to people of that generation, the wartime generation, it's always a sense of, well, it's them and us, you know, we were hung out to dry. Yeah. I tried to highlight that in, in my stories, but also their bravery and their dignity and their strength. But talking about sort of romanticising it, the thing we always romanticise is is kind of the East End in wartime. We never really talk about the rich people in the wartime. And it's one of the only times in history, I think, that we do that, because most of history yeah. is based around your earls, your dukes, your kings, your all of that, Absolutely, which yeah. is what we kind of don't yeah. do on our podcast generally. I mean, we, we, we do have the odd person in if they are particularly of interest um, in that genre. This is the only time in history that we really, the focus is particularly on the, the poorer people. And, you know... We romanticise it, but we romanticise that bit of it. And I think there is a romantic element because you're talking to, you know, your your Vera's and your Pat's and, and your Minxie. I mean, love that name. Um, and one of the things that seems to come across and probably why we romanticise it is this sense of community. And yeah, let, let's not beat around the bush the times times were very hard and you, you were living in this in this um, the tube tunnels and you, you didn't know if your house was still you know right. standing when you went up above but whatever you said every time you talk to them they've talked about you know oh you need to talk to my friend who, who was here and who did that yeah. and there's yeah. this sense of community that I don't think you get in other places um in for London sure. For sure. particularly around the war and I, I think that's why we romanticize it because coming out of it the East End I feel like they came out stronger they came out completely derelict but yeah. as people, they came out stronger, closer, close-knit, looking out for each other. Yeah. So there is an element of truth to that romantic nature of it. Definitely, definitely. I would agree with that 100%. It's one of those places there was a huge... People live collectively, not individually. Mm. There are three things that have been said to me time and again. People live collectively, not individually. What little we had, we shared. And neighbours were as close as friends. And I think that there were these... And it was because these communities were so tight knit, you know, often down the street, you'd have aunts, uncles, extended family. Yeah, true. You know, and you and it was quite parochial. I always think of the East End as like a little 
network of interconnected villages, each with their own distinct personalities. So, you know, if you yeah. were from Bedford Green, that was your patch, your manor, and you knew everybody within there. If you were from Poplar, that was your patch. And so it did foster this enormous sense of community. And again, I think because there was no welfare state, you know, every street or turning had its own chief female, the auntie, if you like, in the wrap over <laughs> apron and the, and the turban. Love it. She, actually, I wrote a whole book just about that called The Stepney Doorstep Society, really examining and getting down into the roles, the, the contribution that these women made to the social, the political, the economic history of their neighbourhoods. They were way more influential mm-hmm. and powerful than we give women, working class women, credit for. You know, they were laying out the bodies of the dead, birthing new life, intervening in domestic disputes, lending money. You know, they were in the absence of welfare state. These women were the welfare state. And so really it's these women in these communities that fostered that sense of togetherness and solidarity that lasted, I think, really until, I suppose, way into the post-war years. But once the slum clearance began... Mm. we saw that post-war suburbanization and they covered it actually called the midwife beautifully and and you saw these people moving out to Dagenham and these new built council estates in Essex and that really changed the face of the East End I think that began really the sort of breakdown of those communities but it's got an almost legendary almost mythical status now hasn't it the East End yeah Um, it has and and it was interesting what you were saying about the women because I do you know most of society is quite a patriarchal society but I've always viewed the East End as quite matriarchal have you I'm so pleased you said that because well you know that the men obviously they're the breadwinners but it is and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast that the East End was always very poor so it was a lot of hand-to-mouth and you know if you didn't work in the morning you didn't eat in the evening and so yeah, the men yeah. are off doing that so while they're busy off working all the hours who's left to take over the running of like you yeah. say sorting out disputes figuring out this that and the other it's the women Absolutely. and women you, you show about them they did yeah and you get these stories of these quite formidable matriarchs in the east oh, end awesome. who people you know wouldn't cross and oh. and they run that patch and all that kind of thing and yeah. i i think as well women were a lot more um they they came into things like politics a lot you know you've got Miriam Moses for example yes. um, one of the first yes. um, female mayors it was not the first female mayor I think um of Stepney and and all these things where women are a bit more like look we've just been getting on with this stuff so while over there in Westminster you're keeping your women indoors yeah. and and teaching them how to do you know needlework and sing prettily we've been getting on with stuff so now I'd actually quite like to take that a step up and now yeah. officially sort it out so I have always felt like it's that kind of matriarch. Absolutely. You're area. so right. And I'm glad you cu- you referenced Miriam Moses because I, I feel like the East End is probably because it's been a place of poverty and overcrowding, but it's always been the, the cradle of, or, or the heartland, if you like, of the struggles for a better life. And that goes back mm. to the 1888 match women's strike where it took a group of women to come out on strike. And then it go, you look, that the, and then that goes forward to the Battle of Cable Street where there were a great many women yeah. coming out in, um, against the rise of fascism. We saw it again in taking over the tubes. It was women who, as well, who marched on the underground uh, banqueting suite at the Savoy. Mm. There were a whole raft of rent strikes that broke out um, a year before the Second World War. It was women who stood on their doorsteps and and, and went on rent strikes, basically make improvements to their living conditions. So, and then you can carry that right forward to the four Dagenham workers. So we can yeah. see, you know, the East End has always been a place of strong political women unafraid to stand up for their rights Mm. um and so i think it's really interesting when you look at it across the spectrum of time and those battles for for better living basically i find it fascinating 
it's, it's funny because when it's almost that thing of and I, I don't mean this reductively at all when you've got nothing you've got nothing to lose so these women who they don't have you know much in terms of money a property what they have is a family and that is what yeah. they're willing to fight for yeah. so whereas on the other side you know the the, the rich the aristocrats they're going to lose money and that's a big important thing yeah. for them yeah, and these yeah. days it's like i've got my family i'm going to fight for that i've got nothing yeah. else you can sue me yeah, you can yeah. take my money whatever i've got none of it don't worry about it yeah. i'm going to just fight and i think that, that instinctive understanding of the power of solidarity so with things like rent strikes women understood that if they banded together they were stronger they had a strong yeah voice so we saw it with the matrimony strike we saw it with the rent strike you know women have come together to uh, you know to, and understand the power of their collective voices yeah. and i think that's something that comes from being born in those sort of quite matriarchal societies but i always think of it as like you know for women born in the first half of the 20th century before that advent of the welfare state and institutionalized institutionalization of roles Women were all of those things. They were a social worker, a citizen advice bureau worker, a counsellor, mm. a confidant, a friend, often all rolled up in one boiled apron, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's the roles they played. And I think it was quite a unique time. And obviously after the foundation of the welfare state and life became more institutionalised, we we began to say goodbye to the sort of the matriarch, the chief female, the auntie-like figure, who were, as you say, often incredibly tough. Mm. You wouldn't want to mess with these women by any stretch. <laughs> um, and were there you, so were there quite a lot of women involved in the running of of Bethnal Green as as the the chief yes. as the centre? Yeah. I imagine there would have been in terms oh, of. Oh, were. Yeah, yeah, for sure there were. So one of the women who I find fascinating is a lady called Mrs. Chumley. I mean, you can't make that name. Up. <laughs> That's great. Is that one of those ones that's spelt Cholmondly? Is that one of those? Oh, no, ones? Mrs. Chum, C H U M B L E Y. That's now that's the East End version, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But she was this sort of formidable woman, apparently with a sergeant major voice, and she and everybody, all the kids were terrified of her. She'd stomp up the tunnels, and if she barked, you know, you would the kids would scatter. But they did what she said, so she ran the tunnels below, and. Interestingly, she was a nurse in the Great War, and um, I, I don't oh, know yeah. where she was never married, so she was a sort of spinster, I think, as, as she was known. But then during the Bethnal Green Chief disaster, she was the one plucking out children with her bare hands, oh. saving lives. She's an absolute heroine. Why is there no woman. statue to, this, to Mrs. Chumbly? That's what I'd like to see a statue. 100%. Yeah. You know, no one's ever heard of her name, and all she did all her life was spent in public service to others, you know, saved all these lives. And and while I met on, on the mention, on, uh, talking about extraordinary women, there was another incredible woman who I was so lucky to interview before she died. And she was called Joan Martin. And she was one of the first female doctors. And wow. she was working the night of Bethel Green tube, tube disaster. She was a trainee doctor on duty at the Children's Hospital on Hackney Road. Right. And she told me, I interviewed her, and she told me about that night, about how she was on duty when all of a sudden these bodies started coming into the hospital and no one could work out how, the, the, how they had died. They were just being delivered. Oh, really? And she said, wow. before long, you know, the, the trickle of bodies turned into a flood and she said there was just this ghastly heap of bodies everywhere. She didn't know what to do with them. All they could do was lay them out as respectfully as they could. And then eventually word began to filter back that there'd been this crush at the tube disaster. And she worked all night long just laying these bodies out, tending to them as best she could. Um, utterly traumatic. Yeah. I can imagine, she said, I was just wading through corpses. 
And then she said the next morning, she said we'd worked 12 hours without a drop of water and, and her superior came to her and said, you must not talk about what you've seen. And she didn't. And she suffered the most horrendous nightmares for the next 73 years of her life. I can but imagine. She was an incredible woman, you know, worked through the blitz, tended to the to the victims of the tube disaster, worked as a doctor in some of the poorest quarters of, you know, back then Notting Hill, which was quite a slum, as you know, back then. She worked to... Uh, really hard as a, as a doctor all her life she and I met her when she was 101 she was an MBE by then good um, yeah. the least that's the least that could have happened she, um, when the finally when the memorial to the victims of the chief disaster was unveiled she was the one that cut the ribbon and it was a wonderful thing to see oh, wow. she'd waited all her life for this and two weeks later she died and that's I, she just sort of said I feel like I can rest now what she'd witnessed that night gave her such trauma i suppose like yeah. so many others but she's another incredible woman there should be a statue to her somewhere well maybe maybe this is our new project <laughs> yes. we get yes. a statue to mrs chumley and what was the name of the the, the Do- nurse dr joan martin dr joan and martin she did publish her own memoir she's an extraordinary woman that you know that the, the incredible things she did in in the advancement of healthcare for for the working classes she's definitely worth exploring further in fact i talk do, about it in the stepney doorstep society do we have any images of either of them any photos that we might yes, be able to of course i can email them both over yeah, that would be wonderful absolutely. that and would I be amazing photographs of the underground facilities and all the tube uh, down the tube please the bunks the library the theater i've got photographs of them all so that would be amazing really, we can pop them on really our website and people yeah, can have a little look it's so evocative you can't believe it you look at these people sleeping down the tunnels and just think what would and it makes me think like how would I have coped what would I have done Mm. would I have fallen to pieces what would I it makes you start to look inwards and think well what would be my reaction yeah facing such a time of extraordinary challenge and danger because we always like to think that we would be very brave and and stalwart but I mean (laughs) who knows who knows I'm not sure if I was in a bond library I'd calmly go about collecting books and that's true yeah setting up this magical (laughs) library I'd probably be trying to make sure my lunch was still intact. Same, same. I'd be wailing, weeping. (laughs) But you you were talking about the patriarchy earlier. It was fascinating. I don't know whether we've got time to discuss this, but it it helped me to understand, actually, when I was researching the history of the library and librarians' work in World War II, I hadn't realised that there was this real patriarchal, very condescending attitude towards certain members of the library and publishing profession towards working class women. Oh, really? So they were apparently they were deemed, they needed to be pointed in the direction of, as they called it, edifying fair. Women weren't allowed, it was frowned mm. upon for women to go into a library and borrow something like romantic fiction, like mm. Ethel Bell or Barbara Cartland. You know, they were, they were needed, you know, the first library was founded in, in 1853 in Manchester with the lofty idea of making people better citizens, encouraging them to use their, pastime more wisely and that keyed into what the library profession felt women should be reading the classics you know more educational uplifting books but obviously during world war ii women didn't want to read that they wanted to read you know escapism yeah they wanted to read gone with the wind and you know barbara cartland and all the bog busters that's what they needed to escape there was this real war of words that broke out in the library profession about just that and that was just for working class women, was it? Because I, I almost feel like for I mean, maybe, women, to be fair. maybe it's changed a bit, but I, I sort of feel like in times gone by that they would have been 
discouraged from reading anything that was too educational because it wasn't seen, you know, it wasn't seen to be yeah. the right thing for women to know too much. Where, whereas they that's would always true. been pushed towards the romantic. That's true. Yeah, that's true. I think in the library though, it was it was more a case of that, that women should be reading like the Jane Austen or the classics, that the books that were too racy. You know, women were emotional creatures. They might get ideas yeah. in their head if they read about women galloping off into the sunset with a man or behaving in ways that were unseemly. Um, and I, I found this fascinating quote um, when I went to the British Library and I looked back over copies of the Library Association and there was this one, <laughs> one male librarian who said, if women have not enough energy left to read anything but trash, we should be doing them a real service if we prevent them from reading at all. Oh, ordinary. Um, you know, and then th and there was another person oh who, said, who said, and I quote, um, so it's actually a woman who wrote this in uh, writing in the Library Association record in 1942, Hilda McGill from Manchester Public Library wrote of the surge of housewives who find themselves with more time on their hands as their husbands are serving away and they end up in the public library. And she wrote at 18, She's probably read the light novels of the day. As literacy has increased, so has the standard of light reading depressed itself to something approaching the nadir of imbecility. But she conceded it's better to read a light novel than skim the pages of a paper on the basis that even the most foolish book is a kind of leaky boat on a sea of wisdom. Some of the wisdom will get in anyway. Who <laughs> <laughs> are these people like? Boat you know, on the sea of wisdom. This is what one of read, you know? Oh my god, these quotes are just incredible. A it's leaky true. boat on the sea of wisdom. I, know, I feel I like know. that sometimes. I think that's me. I know, my most constantly <laughs> <leaking>. <laughs> Oh my goodness, this is just such an amazing story. And it, it's it's lovely to learn about these little bits because you know, often we talk about the Bethnal Green tube being used, but it, it's those details that make it human, and that's what I love about, yes. about I history. Think so. I think so. so. Your book, you said it's based on historical fact, but it is a it is a novel. Yes, it is a novel. I, I did. I could have written it as a nonfiction because there are so many real characters: Minxie and Ronnie and Mrs. Chumley and Pat. And I could have written that as a straight nonfiction. But my feeling on these things is, and I've written fiction and nonfiction. I think if you want people to become engaged and emotionally connected to the past, we need to be told a story. Mm. You know, with a, begin a beginning and a middle and an end. And I think that's how we get swept away in a story, is if we are reading a novel, it makes it easier. But but what I try to do when I write that as a novel is make it as accurate as I possibly can. I feel like we do have a duty of care to the past. And so I weave imaginary protagonists. So like my, my librarian, Clara, is a figment of my imagination, but she's interacting with Mrs. Chumley and Pat's right. wife. Um, so I try to weave um, non-fiction and fiction together in such a way that it remains faithful to the past, but it also gives the reader permission to switch off and just get whisked away in a story. If That's that makes amazing. sense. That does make sense. It does, because sometimes, you know, when you, the, the thought of picking up a factual book about these things, you think, oh, it's going to be heavy. Oh, it's going to be exactly. so actually a, a, a way of taking it in and, and uh, yeah, in, and a, in an entertaining way. And you can kind of craftily, at the end, I always include an article. So at the back of the Little Wartime Library, you can read the true story and you can see the photographs and suddenly people go, oh my God, this is all true. Mm. It's a real story. And I think it gives the, your actual novel more impact when if at the end you come to read it and you think, oh my God, Mrs. Charlie yeah. existed. That's um, amazing. Yeah. So that's how I kind of, I've laboured long and hard on this. And I, I've often thought, oh, I don't know, because 
should I not write it as non-fiction? But no, I think the best way to do it is to give people that permission to switch off yeah. and just get swept away in that story. That's what we want, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm very excited to read it. I have it on order. It hasn't arrived oh, yet, but it's uh, <laughs> it's, it's on order. And this is your first book as well to have been published in the USA and Canada, which yes. came out on the 22nd of February. Yeah, yeah. It came out on Tuesday. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really We excited. do have listeners in the US and Canada, so oh, wow. this is oh, their first you. opportunity to... Um, <laughs> and where, where, where can people find your book? Uh, in Barnes & Noble and Walmart and lots of supermarkets I've never heard of before. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, you can, and obviously on Amazon, but but really through your local library, how amazing Absolutely. And this, this is this is this is what we want to take away from yeah, this. Is yeah, go to yeah, your local yeah, yeah. library. You can buy it from Amazon, but it's better if you borrow it from the public library. That's yeah. what I would say. And it's lovely because I've seen bloggers and so forth in America posting the light the little wartime library in the it's a massive thing in America. I hadn't realised, but the little free library, you know, the little post box. Oh library. yeah. Well, not post box. They're like little sort of tiny little cupboards, really, and, and yeah. they have them a lot in different neighbourhoods in America. So I've seen lots of people posting it in their little free library which I love. That's so amazing. So come along and take it. And in, in the UK, is it in all the sort of big, you know, Waterstones and... Uh, not so much Waterstones, but it's... Um, well, because it actually came out in the UK late last year. So right. it, it was available in Tesco's and Sainsbury's. But again, it's in all... If you go into your library and say, if you don't have it, could I? Could you please order the Little Wartime Library? And they'll be able to do that for you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'd much rather people went into the library and ordered it. But... Yeah, you can get it anywhere. <laughs> in Amazing. The, in the reason. <laughs> oh, Kate, thank you so much for coming and chatting oh, to us God. today. Sorry if I waffled on a bit. I just get no. A bit- I absolutely love it. It's been really, really fascinating. And um, maybe we can see if we can't. Why should get it? A green walk. I yes. You could start the line, yes. go down to the tube, and then go for lunch at Pelucci's. <laughs> I think maybe we should do that. Just, just me and you. We're just going to go yeah, have a wander we, around. Yeah, we, um, and um, I, I think we should start a campaign to have a little statue of some oh, East End yes. women, even if it was just a collection of them together. Yeah, you know, one statue yeah. with Mrs. Chamley, with with the Doctor, with you know, and then the matriarch, or whoever, you know, the street yeah. auntie, because she could be anyone, right? You just yeah. need a kind of big no nonsense woman. Who do we speak to about about causing a stir to get a? Oh, statue. Tower Hamlet's Council. We should, we should go there. Mm. Would be good, though, wouldn't it? Just a collection of women, because yeah. it, you know, like we said, it was women around the show. It's about time. Listeners, said. if any of you have any clues on how to get a statue commissioned, who we go to speak to, let us know because oh, yeah. um, I want to do this. Yeah, for sure. I do this. It's about time. It absolutely <laughs> is. This. There's so many statues of men who didn't really do much or had a bit of a murky past. And there's amazing, we, we've spoken about Angela Burdett Coots in the past. Yes. Why is there not a statue of her? Um, yes. You know, because she she fits the whole has money aristocratic type thing. So if, if that's yeah, your, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, she was a fascinating character, wasn't she? Absolutely. But, you know, if we if we want, I think we need some more. But just ordinary women, you know. When yeah. I say ordinary, I really mean extraordinary. Yes. Where are their statues? You know, yeah. I mean. Every time I go and interview a woman, she always says the same to me. Oh, I'm I'm nothing interesting. I'm only ordinary. Mm. And then you discover, you know, she, she's helped to take over the tubes or taken part in the Battle of Cable Street or just the Herculean task of raising a huge family, holding down three jobs um, yeah. and sleeping down an underground. That that in itself is extraordinary, isn't it? Amazing. Yeah, we absolutely we definitely need more of that. And um, let, let's be the let's be the pioneers of that, shall we, yes. Kate? 
Yes, we'll be like the library, the wartime librarians of our era. Could you imagine <laughs> if we got that sorted? I, I'm, I'm, I'm here for it now. This is it. This is my new yeah. project. This is going to be amazing. Um, have you got, uh, have you got another book uh, in the works? Oh, yes, I'm doing. Actually, I'm writing a new one. I'm, I'm editing it at the moment. Um, set in Jersey during the occupation. Oh, interesting. At Elliot Pub Public Library. So obviously they didn't have bombs to contend with, but they did live under the Nazi jackboot. Yeah. So that's a whole other, that, that takes in censorship and the struggles that librarians had when they had, you know, Nazi censors breathing down their necks. It's fascinating. The occupation, my God, that is, you know, Jersey is an island simmering with stories. That's a fantastic, that's a whole other podcast. Oh yeah, we might have to get you back on for that. Let, let yeah, us know when, uh, when that's to. happening. Elizabeth, thank you so much for having me on. I really love thank this. Thank you so uh, much for coming. I honestly, it's been it's been fantastic, and um, uh, yeah, I'm I'm thrilled that you uh, that you responded to my uh, my email going. I really like this <laughs> episode. And um, where can anyone people find you? Yeah, absolutely. Where can people find you, Kate? Uh, so on Facebook, Kate Thompson author, Kate Thompson author on Instagram, and the same on Twitter. But um, yes, I'm, pretty, I'm really relatively easy to find on social media. Yep. <laughs> and that's Thompson with a P in the middle, isn't it? It is, yeah. So yep. T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N. So yeah, Fantastic. you can find me there. But I'd like, you know, I'd love to hear, if anyone's listening and they're, they're thinking, oh God, that really reminds me of my auntie or my nan or <gasps> any yeah. significant female in their life, I'd love to hear. Everybody's got a story to tell. Absolutely. Whether they think it or not. Yes, exactly. Amazing. <laughs> Kate, thank you so much. Oh, what a so treat. Welcome. Thank you for having me on. Well, listeners, there we go. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. It was a real treat to talk to Kate and I, I think it was a, a great chat. I really loved um, finding out all about the uh, Bethnal Green tube station. Um, as promised, she has emailed photos across so they are now live on the website. I realise we haven't done any um, kind of posts for a while. I think everything got a bit a bit out of hand last year and everything was so busy um as you know uh but we're going to try and get back into that to do some pictures and bits and pieces that that uh um accompany each episode so you can go to the um details on our website ladieswholondon.com and if you look in your uh, the description of the podcast in wherever you're listening then it should have a link that will take you straight through uh to the post as well so there's photos there of the tube station before um it was sort of inhabited photos of it being used as a theatre as a library of the children playing there's photos of dr joan martin and pat spicer in there um, and also some pictures of the memorial too as well as information about where you can find kate and also a couple of um, ideas about where to get the book if you want to do that um, but I think you'd agree that was a lot of fun and a really interesting look at another little area of london that we uh you know again little bits of history that sometimes get overlooked um so massive thank you to her for coming on um but that's it for this week um we're going to have the lovely fiona back with us next week because uh, a couple of days ago um well a week ago now really uh, fiona and i went to the shrove tuesday the pancake tossing at the guild hall and we were just going along for a little bit of a laugh to see if it might you know be something quite interesting and it turned out there was a lot of very interesting stuff and we spoke to a lot of very interesting people so next week's episode is going to be slightly different we're going to be i, th I think they call it in the trade 
on location, babes, on location. Uh, so that's going to be quite a fun one. It's going to be a nightmare to edit, but we're going to go with it. Uh, it's going to be fun. So that will be next week. So Fiona will be back for that one. But for me, thank you so much for coming along and listening this week. Um, do get in touch. Please let me know. You know, I, well, obviously we're taking the podcast in a slightly different direction than it has been. I mean, similar in terms of uh, content, just a slightly different way of doing things. Um, and I'd love to know your thoughts. If you enjoy it, if, you know, anything else you want me to have a look at, all that kind of thing, please do get in touch. And uh, yeah, it's lovely to hear from you. It's nice to know that there are people out there uh, listening. Thank you so much, darling listeners, and I will see you next week. Take care of yourselves. Bye.